Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Michael. How's everybody doing? You hanging in there? You ready for some more entertainment? Dude, I think everybody's ready for more entertainment. I know. We're actually getting messages like, I can't, like, I wish you guys had more. And it's like, dude, we're putting out more content than we ever did before. I know. It's just, you're bored. We get it. <laughs> we're bored. We <laughs> we're just sorry, can't. we can't record every single day. Yeah, it's physically impossible to keep you entertained 24-7. We're, but, uh, yeah, I feel like we're hustling more than we ever have, and, it, and it's it's nice. It's paying off. It's, uh, like we talked about before, it's nice to see the big projects come together. Right, right. You know? It's nice to have the time to work on the things a little bit more. Yeah. So that's one bonus to quarantine. And also I was thinking this morning about how nice it's been. I've connected with my daughter so much more. Like she's become like a daddy's girl over this time because I'm here every day, all day right. at home. And it's going to be a bummer when I have to go back to work and I'm hardly around again, you know. I'm going to get uh, that scowl when I come home like, who are you? Oh, no. Maybe, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'll make it make her grow fonder, you know. She'll be look forward to when you come home. Yeah, hopefully. Now that now that you guys have kind of established more of this bond, mm-hmm. and she's getting older, kind of starting to get her little personality. Yeah, you know, the best, <laughs> the best, no doubt. So uh, yeah, we got a good case this week. Uh, two worlds colliding, uh, celebrity obsession. You got everything, some stalking. It's uh, it's it's a creepy thing. Um, yeah, it back used to before. Occur. I mean, now that there's all these laws and stuff protecting this, is another case where laws were basically spawned from this case to protect people in the limelight. That's thankfully. what I was going to say. This was back before stalking laws or any type of regulations, which is surprising to me because, I mean, Hollywood was more than aware of it. I mean, the the stars oh, yeah. knew. In most the stars the, had their own means of protecting themselves, right? And, the people who were really at risk were people like Rebecca Schaefer who were new to the scene. They were so like happy to be a part of it, and they loved the fans and just yeah. didn't see the threat that was lurking there. Then didn't really they underestimated it. You know, well, I don't the, think the people that have been around were trying to tell them like you got to seriously be careful. You know? Right. Well, I don't think she saw it as fame, you know, and that's that's the mistake that she made. She just saw it as meeting new people and making connections and doing the things that she liked to do. She didn't yeah. think of herself as this as this role model or this person to be put up on a pedestal, and and in reality, at her level of fame, there's people who are doing that. You know, probably lots of people who are doing that. And when you interact with these people, you take a chance on them misinterpreting the things that you say. Yeah, and this is a this is a prime example of that. The people who the the young girls who she was maybe a role model for, and she didn't think she was and stuff. Those aren't the threats. It's the it's the the men out there that have become obsessed with the idea of having you as as theirs, you know, like you, she showed just a passive amount of somewhat attention to this this unknown person who wrote her a letter, and that was like everything to him. It's like that when you're real young and you haven't quite figured out that when a girl like scribbles in your yearbook with a little heart that she doesn't love you, you know, like he still is right. in that stage where he's like, she loves me, like she put a heart. How could she not love me? I yes, yeah, you're right. X O X O. Oh, you know what that means? I'm gonna go meet her. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's common misconception, and they just get obsessed. But they, but they just fall in love with that character. You know, they fall Mm -hmm. in love with her character. And like, uh, like the documentary pointed out that we watched, um, which we'll talk about. But uh, they talked about how the innocent ones, like her, the ones that portray these innocent characters and seem so lovable and down to earth, those are the ones that typically have these type of stalkers. 
they have right. the they have to worry about it because they constantly are playing this this character that that doesn't necessarily seem larger than life. They seem like the girl Down next to earth, door. They seem, exactly, the you know? girl next door. Yeah. Yeah. My sister Sam, the character she played in her t- her first big role on daytime or nighttime sitcom television. Um, she played this, yeah, this young, innocent girl who had come down from Oregon to be with her sister in California. We'll talk about all that. But yeah, she was very, she seemed, and she was a new star too. She was new to the scene and was in a lot of ways like her character, actually. I mean, the, the her co-star was an older woman who had already been uh, around for a while in Hollywood and everything. And she started mm-hmm. living with her and she really was actually a lot like her character. I think that's why they picked her. You know, they saw her at the audition and were like, this is a young, wholesome fun, bubbly girl who's much like the character we're trying to find. Right. And, and then them so. living together, I think, just boosted that chemistry. So it made that character even more real. Yeah. Because they lived together like sisters, and then they played yeah. sisters on screen. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it made that... I'm sure they had great chemistry. I mean, they were they were on CBS, right? She was covering a TV guide, which was a big yeah. deal back then. Yeah. Dude, I remember TV well, guides. Do you remember those? I'm TV like, guides. We'll dive into all this, but yeah, TV guides, <laughs> dude. That was that was something that I think we were right at the tail end of that. And a lot, like, if you're just even a few young years younger than us, you have no idea what the, like a TV guide like that's yeah. that's on your DVR, right, or like your your menu on your cable television. Yeah. But here's my the mom, funny thing. Though. My mom was all about that TV guy, dude. If oh, you told it like yeah. if you if that was misplaced, that was on you because she had it right in its little holster. Yes. You know, in the side of the couch or whatever. And it was like highlighted programs we were gonna be watching that week. Oh, I was just about to say, <laughs> I was just about to say when I went over to my papa's house, man, he'd have one sitting on the side of his recliner and it had it was just it looked like a freaking Bible. It was flipped through so much. And then it just had <laughs> it had things just highlighted. Every boxing match. That was ever <laughs> televised right. was highlighted on there, you know, uh, sporting events, NASCAR. I mean, just all kinds of stuff highlighted. I just thought it was weird. I'm like, why do you have a book when you have a channel? Because there's always been a channel that tells you. But I guess if you want to plan ahead, you know, if you want to know what's coming on, you know, weeks from now, months yeah. from and now. And the TV guard channel, TV guy channel would just bombard you with advertisements too. It was like watching nonstop commercials and they just a little scroll at the bottom of what was coming on. Right, right. So that was pretty annoying. Even though we probably, if you uh, if you counted all the time that you spent watching TV, you probably spent more time watching that stupid TV guy channel looking for something to scroll up and catch your interest. That's the equivalent you, of nowadays, the Netflix menu page, right? Where you're just it scroll is. like... I can't tell you how many times where I've sat there and just scrolled through. I'm like, I don't even feel like watching anything anymore. I, I can't find anything I care that much about to watch right now. I know. And I've just spent 40 minutes scrolling through every single category, and I don't care to watch any of it. So. And sometimes Netflix ruins it with the uh, with the preview, like the trailer and the preview. Yeah, you is feel so like you already good. watched the whole thing, right? And I'm like, You're like, all right, I already saw it. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I pretty <laughs> much just digested the the point of that movie. I get it. I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna find something else now. Yep. I think that's why so many people watch uh, series now. Because you, it's mm-hmm. not just a, you know, you can't get the whole idea in forty-five seconds. You know what I mean? Exactly. Within a series. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it is what it is. Let's dive into this case, man. We've already given you a lot, but there's so much more. There's so much more to the Rebecca Schaefer saga. Um, yes, there is. Young starlet that was taken from us too soon. Let's dive into it. Let's do it. Yes, he wanted to locate a woman that might be in the Los Angeles area. He said the person's name was Rebecca Schaefer. By the end of June, he wrote his sister Arlene a letter in which he stated, I have a fixation with the unattainable and I'm going to eliminate that which I cannot obtain. 
What he indicated at the very end of the letter was the most chilling of all, which was like a grave marker, and it said, Hint, colon, 1967 to 1989. 1967 is the birth date of Rebecca Schaefer. case this week is that of a young budding starlet as we had mentioned Rebecca Schaefer her rise to fame we'll go through all that and then her unfortunate end um, when she crossed paths with someone she didn't realize was as big of a threat um, and she was not as careful as she should have been with her personal information right. um, even though she was warned on several occasions and now since laws after her unfortunate death laws had been made following that to protect people in the limelight, as we mentioned, um, as a direct response to uh, what happened with her. So we'll start going through that. And our Kate, the, what we used to study was your biggest fan. It's on, you can find it on YouTube, but you can find the full documentary uh, on, uh, was it ABC's website ABC, or CBS? Yep. ABC. ABC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. ABC's website. You can, if you just go to YouTube, find your biggest fan, Rebecca Schaefer. Mm-hmm. And then in the description, there's a link to the full hour and 20 documentary. It was really good. 
really well done. It talked with a lot. They interviewed a lot of the actresses and uh, actors that she worked with and her ex-boyfriend and, and uh, yeah. You know it, what? It, it was interesting watching a uh, documentary with all actors and actresses, right? You talk about dramatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they I mean, know how to play it up, Oh, right? dude. They, I mean, it was already dramatic, but... Right, and then you had so many of them be like, I know how she felt because I've dealt with my stalkers Oh, yeah, so they're going to make it times. about themselves, so I'm right? like, okay, here we go with this. We don't... You're still alive. Move it along. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Rebecca here. But, right. yeah, they... Yeah, you could see there was a lot of... Uh, vanity. There was a lot of vanity. There was, and there was one point where they interviewed a lady who made a movie about herself, and she was talking about how Rebecca was perfect to play her, and then she just kept bragging about Rebecca, and it's like, you're inadvertently bragging about yourself. This just feels weird. But Rebecca was so amazing and beautiful, and <laughs> as a matter of fact, when I thought someone needed to play me, I thought it would be Rebecca, because just, I'm so amazing and beautiful. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you can get past that, it's a great documentary, but that's, that stuff yeah, I was just kept ask, distracting like, me. I was going to ask before I forget, like if you ever had, I mean, obviously the, the, the man in this case that became obsessed with her. Yeah was beyond i mean he and he had an issue where he only cared about people who were famous in a sense like it's he had no friends nothing like that yeah because he was just obsessed with celebrity culture and and uh pop culture and all that stuff to to the 10th degree right Um, but was there anybody where when growing up that you had kind of an unhealthy obsession i wouldn't say unhealthy but you were pretty obsessed with as you know from a celebrity whether it was a musician or an actor or whatever um you mean like a like a celebrity crush or something like that? Yeah, I mean that too. I mean that that was that was where I was headed because I was kind of borderline obsessed with Jennifer Love Hewitt for a minute. When okay, I was a teenager. Yeah, all those '90s movies with oh, like man. Freddie Prince and stuff. Can't hardly wait. I think that was where I really fell in love with her. Oh, okay. She even put out an album called Bare Naked, and I bought her album. Believe it or not, because <laughs> the music was so great. Just because I was. It was just like height of being kind of obsessed with her, right? Like maybe she's bare naked in the uh, in the little CD book. Let me. That's what I was hoping for. Obviously, I thought so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was. I. uh, I I guess I. My first crush. I think when I was younger was uh, probably Jessica Biel. Oh, dude. Yeah, Jessica Biel. I was there with you for a while too. From after uh, seventh heaven. Was it from Summer Catch? I know you were a baseball. Oh, Summer Catch. Yes, definitely, definitely. Her part in Summer Catch got me for yes. sure. Summer Catch, Seventh Heaven, um, yeah, those those movies. They kind of yeah. She was like a crush that I had, and also Topanga from Boy Meets World had a crush on. Oh yeah, Topanga. we've all been there too. Yeah, that we just caught us at the right age because we were so. I mean, we were like middle school. Yeah, right when when that show was big. That's right. But I, so I mean, I wouldn't like you're say puberty, and then you see Topanga on TV every day. Like, right? That's like your girlfriend at the time because you don't have one yet. So right? It's like <laughs> exactly. You can just imagine what it would be like. But uh, right. no, but I, not obsessed though in any way. I, I never felt like I wanted to write to these women. No, or, yeah, no, or even men that I looked up to. I felt to. like I could. I never felt like I could ever get a personal relationship with them. That was not attainable. Nor did I even expect want to try yeah, you know it was right. pointless and now i understood the le- the point you know how, how how unattainable that was exactly i had a yes i had probably too much of an understanding of that because i've never even wanted to meet celebrities honestly um right. because i feel like you're not going to meet the real them anyways so what's the point mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a type of person that when i meet someone and i and they, i feel like i want to have a relationship with them or establish a connection you know i just i want it to go a little bit 
further than that. I want to actually, you know, either influence them or learn things from them myself. And that's just never going to happen with a celebrity. Like, I'm not that naive to be like, this person's going to drop everything. All of a sudden, we're going to be best friends and hang out and, you know, play video games or, or you know, go to each other's cookouts and stuff. Like, it's just not going to happen. I know that. I mean, I was exactly. like being a huge baseball fan. Like, they're going to forget you the second they walk away. Exactly. There was one time when I was, uh, my parents took me to a spring training game in Florida. And I was a huge Yankees fan growing up. I, I just, I just was because, mainly because of Derek Jeter. Um, I was obs- speaking of Jessica Biel. <laughs> yeah, right. I was obsessed. Who had a fling? I think. Yeah, I was obsessed with Derek Jeter, and uh, I was. I went to a spring training game, and he was like throwing out in left field where our seats were, and I was like ten feet from him, and I didn't even try to get in. To- I didn't even try to talk to him because I was just like, "What's the point?" I mean, he's ignoring everybody else here. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So why am I going to... makes me so special. Yeah, exactly. So I just sat there and was like, that's cool. Like, I remember it was Derek Jeter and A-Rod. I was like 10, 20 feet from them. They're just like warming up, throwing. I was just like... First off, I was like, they're freaking giants. I didn't realize how big they yep. were. A-Rod's like 6'5", mm-hmm. Jeter's like 6'3". Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're big dudes. But but yeah, never had any desire, even to get an autograph, really. I just... I was like, what am I going to do with it? Exactly. Uh, it's just... Uh, yeah, but I, it's it's kind of cool seeing them in person. But at the same time, like I've I've had the opportunity on several. Like I was actually standing behind Nick Cage in line at a sports chalet one time, literally directly. Oh yeah, I remember you telling me this story. Him, and he like turned and stared at me, and I had no care. I was just like, well, that's cool. That's Nick Cage. Yeah. But I I'm like I don't need to make this about me right now. I don't need him to know me. I don't. He doesn't give a fuck. Obviously. <laughs> no. So and that's what I was gonna go to is like I, I got over that stage pretty early and realized like. Not only do they not would they would that person ever care about me? So Jessica Love Hewitt or Jessica Beale or whatever said male actor that I idolize or whatever. It not only would they not ever care to meet me or know me, but also they are not even who I think they are. Most likely, they are playing a role that I appreciate or whatever. Yes, and we don't know who the real them is. They might be an asshole. Probably, oftentimes they are because they're living in a fantasy world where everyone is up their ass all the time. They're they have surrounded by yes men and yes women. Yes, they're they live in gated communities and then they sit there and tweet out about the world's problems and it's like you're not even living in the real world. You don't even work in a real job. You're going and to a catered trailer, going on the set where everyone kisses your ass, reading some lines, pretending to be someone else. And in, a, in an actor's case, you know, right? They're not uh, truly relatable. They're no. They're never going to be able to establish any type of connection. That's, that's what I started realizing as I got older. It's like not only would they care to know me, but I don't think I would care to know the real them either. I'll just enjoy their role in what it said movie. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot of actors that I've learned to separate. Where it's like I've heard them in interviews, and I'm like, I can't stand you, but I'll still watch your movie and buy into that. And I like you as an actor, but that's it. That's as far as it goes. I don't care to. I would rather not know anything about you. I'd rather not know anything about actors and actresses outside of the screen. I intentionally avoid interviews with them and such because I don't. I'd rather just enjoy their acting, and that's that. Right, and that's weird, dude. I think you're. I think you're. I think we are in the minority in that right now yeah. because right. with social media and Snapchat, I mean everybody give so much of their personal life out there right now like all stars yeah. i mean because you, you kind of have to nowadays because yeah. the people if you don't you're falling behind the people people want that transparency well is that the word uh, transparency <laughs> transparency transparency there we go but also i mean <laughs> but also it's just money sitting on the table i mean you already have this fame you already have this presence this influence all yeah. you have to do is literally sign on to instagram and put up a selfie and it's like 500,000 yeah. views. 
you know what I mean? Or likes or whatever. Right. It's just, I mean, like, look at Will Smith. That's a safe level of transparency though. You know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're, there's filters to what you're doing. Like, yeah, selfie. Don't have, uh, your house behind you with the address on it. Like it's pretty safe to just post a picture, I guess, right. or a video or even like, yeah, like doing like a Q and a video thing yeah. on Instagram stories or something like that. It's totally safe, but yeah, but yeah, they so. show, they show us a lot more nowadays than celebrities ever have. I think, but I think in a way it kind of holds them accountable uh, a little bit more than they used to be. But I mean, they're still going to do what they want to do in the privacy of their lives, you know, but right. Anyways, so let's dive into it. Now that we've given our thoughts on uh, celebrity culture and all that, obviously one of the people in this case had much different outlook on things. Yeah, (laughs) Um, for sure. But let's start with Rebecca Schaefer. She was born November 6th, 1967. She shares a birthday with Pat Tillman, Aaron Hernandez, and Ethan Hawke. Wow. Um, I had a note in here. Tillman and Hernandez, after looking a little, you know, after looking up birthdays, it showed their age, both of them 27 when they died. That 27 Club thing is pretty creepy, even though it mainly pertains to musicians and and actors and whatnot, but still, like, famous people, well-known people who die at 27, it's a pretty incredible long list. Pretty creepy, the 27 Club. I'm glad we made it. I didn't realize, I don't think that, like, the Wikipedia page for 27 Club, I looked into that, neither of those guys were even on it either, so I was just like, dang. Oh, wow. Well, because they're not actors, they're both football players. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then Tillman served in the military, right? Both died in completely different circumstances. Right. Aaron as a coward and Tillman as a hero. Yeah, you know. gotcha. Hernandez after murdering random people and then taking his own life. Yeah. We've done that case. Go listen to that one if you haven't. That yet. was, man, that was an interesting case. And there's right. and to be fair, uh, there's a lot of speculation around Hernandez having some CTE issues and stuff. Um, right. You know, it's not like he was just born a bad seed and decided to start killing people. I think it has a lot to do with his brain injuries as well. Yeah, there's a lot to that. And the culture. That being said, a lot of people have CTE and then they don't go killing random people for spilling a drink on their shoe or whatever. That's what I'm saying. But the the CTE combined with the culture that he grew up in, this like tough guy, you got to be a badass, can never show weakness. That You know what I mean? That All that testosterone field. And he was so, he was so young, man. Seemed like one of the worst things that could have happened was him getting drafted to the Patriots up near where he grew up in Bristol. Right. You're dead. We, we, like right. we said, we covered all that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Rebecca was born in Eugene, Oregon in 1967, was the only child to her loving parents. Her family was Jewish. Her father, Benson Schaefer, was a child psychologist, and her mother, Dana, was a writer and teacher at the community college. She was a stunningly beautiful young woman with a perfectly symmetrical symmetrical face and glowing smile. Um, she went to the prestigious Lincoln High School uh, in an affluent section of Portland where she was popular without even trying. Um, she joined the talented and gifted program due, due to her passion for drama and was often the lead, in role, lead role in plays. Um, she still, even with all of her talents and beauty and everything, had aspirations of becoming a rabbi. She, would, she really didn't occur to her that she could go to Hollywood and become an actress or a model in New York City. Um, she wanted to follow in the family's culture and footsteps and right. religion and, and become a rabbi. Well, because I think at a young age, especially raised, uh, raised in a religious household like that, it becomes the most important thing you can do. And when yeah. you when you speak about that type of religion, you see the pride in your parents' eyes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of children 
want to do something. They want to be more involved in their church or their religion at a young age before they kind of find their identity, because that kind of is their identity, and it seems like the most important thing in their life at the time. It's an easy way to make everyone around them proud, is just to kind of follow in that. Exactly. And and Rebecca was kind of a kind of a, a people pleaser from the beginning. Yeah. Her dad talked about how she was an easy child to raise. But also, I mean, having a child psychologist as a dad, that must have been like, <laughs> how much can you really get away with? I mean, the dude... Talk about playing checkers when your dad's playing chess, right? Yeah, exactly. He already exactly. knows what you're going to do before you do it. I mean, he's talking... Yeah, he said, he, I don't know. He said she was so easy to raise that, like, what did he just mention? Like, maybe you shouldn't... Uh, you should just go potty in the in the bathroom instead of the diaper. And he said that was it. Like she never <laughs> needed Dude. a diaper again. Yeah, reminds <laughs> like, me damn. of my my oldest daughter was a lot like that. Seriously, like the easiest kid to raise. And thank God yeah. because me and my wife were kids you ourselves. Were so young, huh? Yeah, we were young and stupid. But then we were like, kids are easy. Look at the, <laughs> like what are y'all <laughs> have bitching a bunch about? <laughs> yeah, but uh, the other two, uh, they 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 uh, they were a different story. They but. made up for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So she has these aspirations uh, early on of becoming a rabbi, but in her junior year of high school, she was referred to a talent agent by her hairdresser. Her hairdresser saw what a young special girl she was, how beautiful she was, and how she had this just ability to capture the room when she walked in and thought so much of her that he actually referred her to a uh, a, uh, talent agent and... uh, by then, the talent agent felt the same way about her, and she quickly became a successful teen model. She appeared in department store catalogs, television commercials, and as an extra in a made-for-TV film, all while she was still only 16 years old. In 1984, at 16, she got a three-month internship offer from Elite Model Management in New York City. Um, it wasn't easy, but she wore down her parents and eventually got permission from her parents and took the opportunity. Her dad, I think, saw a little bit of of um, himself and his wife in her. They both were risk takers early on in their careers right? and would jump at opportunities like this to travel and, and try new things. And she was the same way. Young Rebecca was up for any new task like this. Yeah, he had a quote, man, that I love. And it's... The stool? No, the, uh, he said, there'll be times in your life when you have to choose between adventure and regret. Yeah. Dude, that's no that's so true. That's that's so true, and it's and the the truth of it is, you rarely regret the adventure, rarely. Yeah, but you might, but you rarely do. My right. opinion. Yeah, and also she had a different mind. Rebecca had a, a saying that made the family kind of became their family motto when it comes to like um, the, their closeness, no matter where they are. She said, "No matter in the where in the world I am, we're like a three legged stool." So, like, even when her parents are in up in Oregon and she's in New York City yeah. at 16 years old, like, they're still firm, standing on firm ground, and they're still as tight as ever. Um, yeah. So, they, 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 she kept them feeling good by that, and also the fact that she kept constant contact with her parents. She would call them every day and, and update them on everything that was going on. Um, by August that year, Rebecca was sharing a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan with five other aspiring models. Um, not long after she turned 17, while still in New York... Uh, over one of those phone conversations where she updated her mom on the day, she told of a situation that had happened to her. She said she was down in the subway on her way to an addition, sitting on a bench on the platform, and in front of her was a young guy with a sharpened screwdriver who was pacing back and forth in front of her, slapping the sharpened screwdriver on his hand. There was a young woman in front of him who was clearly terrified, and Rebecca marched over to the young woman, a total stranger, and said, Hi, it's nice to see you. Come on, let's go get a coffee. 
She took her by the hand and pulled her up the stairs. Um, her mother said, I was so proud. She was so brave and such a quick thinker. So she got this young woman potentially out of a very situ serious situation by just kind of taking action right away. And it was probably a little bit of her naiveness. Her, you know, it's like most seasoned New Yorkers would be like, that's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not getting stabbed over this shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take charge. I'm going to miss like, my it train. It could have backfired. Uh, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> right. It could have backfired, but it worked out in this case, you know, and it was just says a lot about her character um, as a person. Absolutely. And while in New York looking for modeling work, uh, Rebecca rounded out her skill set by taking acting classes for five hours a day and acquired an agent who got her auditions. It didn't take long for her looks and talent to get her work. At only 17 years old, she landed a role of Annie Barnes on ABC's One Life to Live daytime soap opera. Did you? Uh, did your mom ever watch those? Or oh yeah, my mom still I think watches Dude. this stuff. Oh yeah, uh, she didn't. I don't think she watched One Life to Live, but she watched like uh, let's see, As the World Turns. Yeah, uh, uh, young, Bold and the Beautiful. Bold and the Beautiful, Young and the Restless. Uh, yeah, they're so bad. <laughs> they're so, <laughs> they bad. Are so bad. And I think the people that watch them know they're so bad. It's like you know, it's like no offense to you guys out there that love professional wrestling, but you know it's fake as shit. <laughs> It's but you still enjoy it for what it is. I don't know what I don't know you why. You just buy but, in. You know. You just buy yeah, in. Yeah. You just yeah. Yeah. You just choose to buy in. You leave your world yeah. for a little bit, and you're like, "This world is real. I'm gonna buy in. I'm gonna have fun, and I'm gonna go home and go back to my life." Yeah. Yeah. It's I guess they, they, it's a guilty pleasure for those that enjoy right. it. Right. Um, but she she knew what it was too. She knew this wasn't the big time, but it was a good it was a good start to get something on her resume, get her face out there, put out. I mean, she honestly, when you watch the clips of her on that show, she was clearly the best actress of whoever or actor that was in the room when she was acting with someone else. You were like, she seems to be better than this show. Oh <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. There was the one actress who it was interviewed in in the documentary we were talking about. And she was so bad when they'd show the clips. It was just oh. like, oh my god! <laughs> and she, I can show up right now and act better than this, and, and I, then, I know I'm terrible. And then in her interview, she was talking like, "Yeah, Rebecca was pretty good for so young." I'm like, "She was like 30 times better than you." <laughs> right. like, That's why you're still doing That's this show. Why you're still you're like, yeah. I was on one and life to live for 57 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Um, now, when it comes to modeling, at five foot seven, Rebecca was a couple inches short of ideal for modeling, and was also uh, in a fiercely competitive market in New York City. So, in 1985, on the advice of her uh, talent agent, she moved to Japan of hopes of finding more modeling jobs. It's kind of a more rare entity out there. She'd have a different look, mm -hmm. um, but she still encountered difficulty due to her height and weight. Um, I think she was probably also a little bit uh, heavy for the you know the modeling scene, which. I I don't really like that ultra skinny look. Yeah, you know, yeah. Myself, but at that time, that is yeah. how it is, and especially yeah, in the eighties, that's what it was. Yes. It's like you had to be paper. It thin. was like almost anorexic thin. Yeah, you had to be. Yeah, um, she then returned to New York City and got some humbling advice from her agent. Focus more on acting, as being a top model in America was not in the cards for her. So I mean, it was. I think it was good advice. I think I think she was she could have maybe scraped by being a model in New York or whatever, uh, but she had she had way better talents. She could right. she was good at acting. About, she had that look. I was about to say her being a model is a waste of her her best talents, which was her personality, right. her bubbly personality and her voice were were great. I mean, if you if you take that stuff away, you're it's like you're not living to your full potential. She had so much more to offer than just being a model. 
Yeah, it's like taking the pecans off a of pecan pie. You know, right? What are you it's doing? Like it's good, but it could be better. Yeah, it could be better. Exactly. You're not you're not using the whole potential here. Right. Exactly. Um, in, in 1986, Rebecca won a small role in Woody Allen's comedy film Radio Days, but in her performance, um, she was ultimately edited from the film. Only a brief scene featuring her character remains in the film, and it's that uh, in the credits known as Com- Communist Daughter was the role she played, just kind of a little extra role in there, and it was mainly cut out of the movie, which she later found out and was kind of bummed about. But yeah. she had bigger roles ahead of her, and it was st- she was still getting going. Um, she continued modeling and also worked as a waitress. Um, television producers were also casting for a CBS comedy sitcom to be called My Sister Sam, starring Pam Dauber. Um, were on the verge of desperation um, at this point. They were, so they, they knew this show was going to be made. They had Pam Dauber, who was uh, already known for her role opposite the great Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy. Right. Um, and they had this idea for a show where Pam um, is living in San Francisco um, she's an older, successful woman, and her young sister has to come live with her in San Fran from Portland after their parents died um, unexpectedly. And, of course, the young sister is this young, bubbly, fun, guitar-playing, uh, fun young girl, right. and Pam is this uptight older woman who's already been around and everything. He's trying it's to mother her dynamic. in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, they were just struggling to find the sister character for Pam Dauber, um, and they were almost like, like I said, desperate when they, when they basically had, uh, young Rebecca walk in and audition for this. And right away they were like, this is the girl. They were just like, they knew instantly she was perfect for it. Um, so she auditions and wins the role of Patricia Patty Russell, a teenager who moves from Oregon to San Fran to live with her 29 year old sister, Samantha, after the death of their parents, as we'd mentioned. And this was a big time get for young Rebecca. You know, this is like, she's. She's gone from, you know, a teen model to daytime soap opera, and now she's getting a major sitcom on a major network. Um, so, yeah, she's she's progressing quickly, and she's still a teenager at this point. So and it's kind of crazy for someone who never really thought they'd be a Hollywood actress to just have this quick of a rise. It, she just, it shows goes to show how special of a presence she had. And I, oh, yeah. I bought in, too. Yeah. I think I would have probably, probably, she just could have been one of those girls I was kind of, uh, had an infatuation with if she was on a show I watched when I was that age. You know, she was obviously this is the '80s, and I was wasn't even born when she was going through this stuff. But right, I kind of like the dynamic in some of the clips that I seen of uh, my sister Sam. Yeah, it seemed like a good sitcom for the '80s, right? Yeah, it did. It really did. I like how she kind of had that like sarcastic, rebellious teen kind of thing. It would mm-hmm. would have been definitely relatable. Yeah, no doubt. So Rebecca was off to Hollywood. Getting this, uh, getting this part was a huge deal. Obviously, the break she'd been hoping for. Meanwhile, in Arizona, there was a troubled man known by almost no one who was about to become Rebecca's biggest fan. And let's dive into this this other character in this story. Robert Bardo was born January second, nineteen seventy. He shares a birthday with Cuba Gooding Jr. Great. Oh, actor. he's not worthy. He's not worthy. I know. Yeah, Bardo's not worthy for sure. No, he's not. Cuba's phenomenal. Exactly. Uh, Bardo was the the youngest of seven children. His mother was Japanese, and his father was a non-commissioned officer in the United St- uh, States Air Force. The family moved frequently and eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona in 1983 when Robert was 13. Bardo had a troubled childhood. He was abused by one of his siblings and placed in foster care after he threatened to commit suicide. His family had a history of mental illness, and he was diagnosed with bi- bipolar disorder. Um, however, he was bright in, in uh, school and had no friends, though. He kept to himself. 
He had an obsession with expressing himself through writing letters. I found this kind of odd. He he was just obsessed with writing letters um, to the extent that even in, in junior high school, he wrote one of his teacher as much as three times a day in which he spoke about ending his own life and even hinted at killing the teacher in which he was writing to. He signed the letters with a tough guy movie character's name each time, like James Bond, Dirty Harry, or Scarface. Scarface. This guy, this kid's got some some serious issues early on. Yeah, but you know what though? I mean, I don't think this is a whole lot different than people who sit at home and express themselves through tweets or through yeah, Instagram right. posts <laughs> constantly. Um, yeah, it's just a different medium, uh, more right. modern medium now that we express ourselves through. But yeah, yeah, yeah just have sit you ever, down with a pen and paper back then? Yeah, have you ever met someone who was like? someone that you only knew through social media for a while and then you run into them in person i can't say that i have that that happened to me a couple times when i was uh when i was playing music in charlotte because we would we would kind of follow other local bands and stuff and then there would be people who would be super like bubbly and just just open and they always had the funniest things to say and stuff on twitter or social media and then you you finally meet them in person and they're like they're like they just clam up like they're just, yeah. I'm like, where's this personality that you portray? But they feel more comfortable having the opportunity to take their time and put their thoughts out in words. And I think that's what what Bardo issues his issue was. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I mean, oh yeah, because it did seem like he, it did seem like when he did see like uh, people face to face that he clammed up too, right? Same yes, thing. Exactly. Like the, he went that 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 fateful day, which we'll get to later in the story, but. When he when he went to Rebecca's, he found her address and he went to her apartment. The first time she answered the door, he clammed up and didn't know what to say and essentially walked away. Right. To come back shortly after. But yeah, like you said, like he, he had so much to say in his letters. But then in person he was just like, uh Yeah, exactly. Well, probably meeting her for the first time was overwhelming too. He was probably oh, yeah. like, Holy shit, she's right in front of me. Uh mm-hmm. I'll be right back. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean sure that was overwhelming for someone like him yeah so some more of his his uh interesting things and troubles early on he was seen by his neighbors on several occasions running into a brick wall over and over again and sort of a self-destruction self-destructive type of activity Um, other times he was seen playing hide and seek with imaginary friends um, Hmm. and he found other imaginary friends in the form of tv and movie stars that he became obsessed with over the years um, none more than Rebecca eventually, but early on it was uh, Samantha Reed Smith that he was obs- he had become obsessed with. She was an American schoolgirl, peace activist, and child actress from Manchester, Maine, who had become famous during the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union. In 1982, Smith wrote a letter to the General Secretary Yuri Andropov and received a personal reply with a personal invitation to to uh, to the Soviet Union, in which she accepted. And she's a little. She's a little child at this point that she's trying to create peace during the Cold War, the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. She attracted extensive media attention in both countries as a goodwill ambassador, becoming known as America's youngest ambassador and subsequently participating in peacemaking activ- activities in Japan. With uh, the assistance of her father, Arthur, she wrote a book about her visit to the Soviet Union, Journey to the Soviet Union, and later became a child actress, hosting a child-oriented special in the 1984 United States presidential election for the Disney Channel and playing a co-star role in the television series Lime Street. Bardo had become infatuated with Samantha through television and magazines and began writing her kind letters. Samantha sent a postcard back on one occasion, leading Bardo to become even more obsessed. Ooh. Um, 
Yeah, that was that's the thing is like, I mean, it's it's the right thing to do, right? To send back, but as one of the actresses in um, the documentary we watched said, you have to be as as impersonable as possible when when dealing with fan letters and stuff like right. that. You literally just send back maybe at, at most a signed headshot of yourself with no message at all. You can't say thank you. You can't say anything because they will take that That's as right. how you have a personal relationship with them. You know, my uh, my cousin, he he did this as a kid. Like he wasn't obsessed with famous people, but like he just, he had this, ad, he had like this address book, like no joke. He had like this book that had all these famous people's addresses. And I'm sure, I'm sure most of them were just PO boxes. Hell? No, seriously, he, yeah. he didn't like find them or nothing. It was like he bought it at a store and it was like P.O. Right. boxes and stuff. And you could write to these people and every single person would send him a signed headshot. And in his room, he had all these signed headshots. He had like Robin Williams, like Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush. Like he's he, <laughs> he majored in political science. Most of them were politicians. Um, uh-huh. He even had like uh, the mafia boss. Uh, Capone? He, well, he no, was in Capone. Uh, Gotti, John Gotti. John Gotti, yeah. He had a signed headshot from John Gotti. And as far as I know, he still has all this stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, he would just write to him. I mean, he was like, I don't know, middle school, maybe elementary school. And they would send yeah. him signed headshots like all the time. And I thought it was like the weirdest thing. But I mean, it, it, it's kind of cool, especially when when it's like, decades old and maybe they're gone now like they passed away and it's like you have something that they touched at one moment and wrote right. on with their own hands you know that's kind of interesting when it's like a former president of the united states or something along those lines there's like a big time momentous person yeah or the um, robin williams of, one that's the one that really stuck out to yeah. me yeah i'll never forget yeah, that one it was like a black and white photo and he's kind of got like his his chin on his fist you know it's like the, the typical mm-hmm. headshot <laughs> but uh yeah yeah, that one was that one was pretty dope. Because, I mean, Robin Williams, you know, he was like one of my comedic heroes. He was just, everything he was in, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, holy crap, Robin Williams touched this, you know? It seems... That being <laughs> I still said, I can get this... I, it sounds weird, but I can get the same feeling from like a really cool-looking rock, you know what I mean? Like that rock, the history that that thing has goes well beyond anything, like any human that you could get a hand signature on. Like that rock, the shit that thing's seen and been through... Like when it's got all the different patterns and stuff. Like, what is this? Where did this come from? What events in history created these markings on this rock? You know what I mean? Right. I get like that if you same go to Red Rock cool Canyon, feeling from that. Yeah. Oh man, and you see the watermarks from years and years, and you're like, damn, this world really yeah, was. Yeah, I think underwater. I'd rather have a really it's cool crazy. rock than a signed headshot from a celebrity myself. <laughs> well, you got plenty of cool rocks around you, so you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was thinking too. It's it's definitely a good thing that we don't have this un, unhealthy uh, obsession with celebrities and whatnot. Because, uh, as you know, when you lived in Vegas with me and you did the job that I still do, yeah, the we had some access to information like people's names attached to their addresses and whatnot all through the city. And there was times where you would just happenstance just run across a name and an address in your list of work orders and whatnot, and you'd be like holy shit, that's so-and-so, celebrity, yep. you know, and then you're looking at, you're sitting there looking at their house, like, you could totally use that information if you wanted to, you know? Oh, yeah. But it, obviously, it's just kind of cool, like, oh, that's where that fucker lives. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that, that is cool. That is cool. But yeah, like you said, that falling into the wrong hands could be detrimental. Yes. It's, it's almost kind of scary that, you know, right. somebody could, that, could be working there and be obsessed mm-hmm. with somebody. 
that being said, the biggest celebrity, I mean, mainly I'm talking about like fighters, like UFC fighters and stuff yeah. where it's like they don't have to worry as much. I, I think probably most of the time when we were doing the work orders and stuff, we could have been doing the work on said huge Brad Pitt's home or whatever. I mean, obviously he doesn't live in Vegas, but said huge actor that lives in Vegas probably doesn't have their name on their account for you know what we were doing. Right, so that, that wouldn't be smart. They probably use it, an alias or a family member's name or something like that, which is the wise thing to do. And as we had mentioned, Robert Bardo, his first unhealthy relationship or obsession with a celebrity was Samantha Reed Smith, and he began writing her letters. Um, and uh, they were kind letters. He was careful about what he said. He was trying not to scare her, scare her off. Uh, and on one occasion, she wrote a postcard back, uh, leading Bardo to become even more obsessed with her. Um, her family phone number was still listed in the phone book at the time, and Bardo got lucky one time when uh, he was calling her. He was calling her house constantly, and on one occasion, she actually answered the phone, and um, he tried to keep her on the phone as long as possible. He's rambling on and on about her and how cool she was and yada, yada. Yeah. Um, eventually, she got off the phone, and every time he tried to call after that, the family answered and wouldn't let him talk to her. I was amazed they didn't just change their, their number right then on the, on the dot, you know, and then oh, get I it know. unlisted. I would have to. Frustrated, yeah. Frustrated and thinking he and Samantha had a relationship, 14-year-old Robert stole $140 from his mother's purse and set off on a 2,800-mile journey to Maine. So he's living in Arizona and takes a 2,800-mile trek to Maine to meet this this young girl he didn't know that he thought he did who was a celebrity. The $140, um, man, good times. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. That's almost uh, like Robert, from here to Vegas, dude. On $140? Yeah. I mean, driving it going to cost you minimum. Like, if you just buy gas and no food, it's going to cost you like 600 bucks. Well, this is 1982 yeah, or know. whatever. I'm just but saying still. it. Inflation's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, know, we never, you never would have made it with that much money now. I know. Um, Robert's parents quickly figured out where their son had been headed and what he was trying to do. They contacted Maine authorities who would find Robert only two blocks from Samantha's home. He didn't have any weapons, and there was no proof of any crime, and they returned him to Arizona. Samantha uh, would uh, tragically go on to die not long after this in August of 1985 at the age of 13 in a plane crash. Super mm. sad. Um, and um, so that, that ended that obsession he had. And at the age of 15, he would be institutionalized for a month to treat emotional problems, much of which stemmed from this young girl that he was obsessed with dying in a plane crash. It actually kind of sent him even further down the you know the list of problems that he had right he dropped out of pueblo magnet high school in the ninth grade and began working as a janitor at jack in the box uh were you gonna say something yeah i was just gonna say that's that's odd to me because you know when it came to uh rebecca he felt like he had to eliminate her because she was unobtainable mm -hmm. i mean and this i know he was older at the time i guess at yeah. 15 he still felt like that that's that says a lot about his psyche at fifteen because obviously he thought that she was still obtainable for him to be, um, you know, obsessed and then to go downhill with at her death instead of yeah, having distraught about her death. Right, because I feel like if Rebecca would have died uh, in a plane crash or or some other cause other than him, I feel like he would have been almost relieved. He'd been like, okay, good. Now no one know. else can. I have think her. he. I think he had to have he, he his obsession with her noticing him. I think that like a lot of times when you see like when John Lennon or 
we've we've seen this before where maybe not even a celebrity but maybe your ex is with a new man like we've seen cases like this right in true crime where the ex shows up and kills his ex-wife and even maybe sometimes her kids and his kids and it's like i had to be the biggest thing in their life and i ended their life so i was the biggest thing in their life like they, they tried to move on without me it, and now what look this is what happens i i didn't allow that and it was my doing and now you know that i'm the most powerful person i think that had a little bit of it to do with his obsession with rebecca is that she rejected him mm-hmm. which we'll get it we'll get into that but yeah right. i think yeah i, I, I kind of look at it a little differently but early on yeah that was interesting I mean, maybe that was the same concept though maybe he was upset because he didn't if he couldn't have young uh, samantha Maybe he wanted to be the one to end her life and not a plane crash. I don't know. I see what you're saying. So he may be upset that he didn't play any role in her life, yeah, or at least exactly. a bigger one. Okay. Mm-hmm. I got you. Yeah, so he drops out of Pueblo High School and uh, starts working as a janitor at Jack in the Box. Uh, he would go on to be arrested three times on charges that included domestic violence and disorderly conduct over the next few years before developing his next celebrity crush, In the summer of 1986, commercials for My Sister Sam began running on TV, and Robert was smitten by the young curly-haired Rebecca Schaefer. My Sister Sam premiered on TV um, on October 6, 1986, scheduled between Kate and Allie and Newhart, both hit TV shows for CBS. When Rebecca had arrived to start her new life in Los Angeles, she was generously offered a room at her co-star Pam Dauber's home where she lived with her husband. They got along just like uh, the sisters that they portrayed on the sitcom. So she had this kind of like fairy tale life going on. You know, she she gets a huge role on a sitcom yeah. and she moves out there and she's living with the person that she's co-stars in the sitcom with and they have this own little fun life at home together. Right. They're almost like and method acting before it yeah. was a thing, I guess. I'm sure it was still a thing, but you know what I mean. Method acting for a sitcom seems strange, right. obsessive even, yeah. but it just happened to work out that way. Mm-hmm. And she she's a young girl alone without her family um, in a new place. And like so everybody on set kind of took care of her like they were like she was their little sister. You know, like she she really had a good time early on recording this show and everything right. was going fantastic. The series earned solid ratings early on and was ranked number 21 by the end of its first se- first season. And at this point, Rebecca was like a bona fide like B-list celebrity. She was everywhere. She was a soldier, too, for CBS um, she was in every new magazine being featured just about every week, uh, inter- being interviewed about my sister, Sam, she would do any and all promotional work they threw at her. She even co-hosted the Canadian part of the Thanksgiving day parade from Toronto and the freezing cold. <laughs> she went up there to do that. Um, She's a trooper. Didn't complain. Yeah, she was a trooper and she did a great job hosting that too. That's not an easy gig. You know, you gotta be off the cuff and, and fun and, she did a great job. A few weeks into the show's debut, fan mail began to trickle in. This was new to Rebecca, and she insisted on writing back to every single one of them. Um, Robert Bardo uh, had wrote long, gushing letters to Rebecca, being careful not to cross the line and scare her off, as he did before. Rebecca, on one occasion, sent back a glossy photo of herself with a heart drawn in the words, with love. Uh-oh. Bardo wrote in his journal that night, I'd like to become famous to impress her. So this... that. The hearts thing that I kind of talked about in the intro, it's you got to be careful with that, ladies, because some some young impressionable men will will take take that as like, oh, she loves me. Yeah, they're looking for any glimpse of anything to hang on yeah. to, and when you throw them throw them a bone like that, especially mm-hmm. someone in you know Bardo's frame of mind, they're going to grab onto that and run with it. Yeah. 
Um, at this point, he was in full obsession with Rebecca. He had searched out and absorbed every bit of information that he could find about her. His room was covered with pictures of Rebecca, like a shrine. Mm. Um, every magazine interview, every t- every TV show that she'd done, every interview she had done was videotaped with VHS, and he would rewatch over and over again. Meanwhile, Rebecca decided it was time to get a place of her own and moved into a small apartment in the Hollywood Hills and out of her co-star, uh, out of her co-star's home. So she got her own little place where she she was known to do. She was kind of silly, you know. She wanted her own place to to dance around, do yoga, and yeah. just kind of be herself. Well, I mean, you want your own place, man. I'm sure she wanted her own place yeah. from the beginning, but I mean, moving out right. to L.A. and having nothing, and finally getting your big role. Now she can afford mm-hmm. it, you know. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't a cheap place to live there then either. No, in Hollywood Hills, no. <laughs> Even a small apartment in the Hollywood Hills in the 80s had to have been a lot. Oh, you um, know it. So in early 1987, Rebecca went on a blind date with an emerging young screenwriter named Brad Silberling. The two hit it off and things got serious quickly. He's now quite a big deal in Hollywood as well. Yeah. Um, this was her first real boyfriend. Then in March of 1987, Rebecca reached another landmark by appearing on the cover of Seventeen magazine. This was like the biggest deal. Being on, that was the magazine. The magazines were the shit back then, right? I mean, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> now, now, is there even magazines anymore? I don't even know if they exist. That's how. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like magazine warehouses are just sad, lonely places where there's just like five people that work there. Can we give these away? There. Can we do something with these? <laughs> right. You guys need a. Does anyone want one? Yeah, you guys they need just like fire handing them out. Like, what do you do with them? I, I don't know. Right. Doesn't make any sense. Um, due to my sister Sam's success, CBS renewed the series for a second season. Um, Rebecca and Brad would date seriously for a little while before deciding the seriousness of their relationship had scared both of them, and they decided to split up. However, <laughs> they would be back together after not too long. In typical Hollywood fashion. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm going to go screw around a little bit. You go yeah. screw around. Maybe we'll reconvene. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll work on a movie together and then we'll get together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rekindle the relationship. Right. Bardo was still, during this time, writing to Rebecca incessantly, received back another response from her that said, quote, your letter is one of the nicest that I've received, Uh-oh. which was actually a standard response that she'd used often. Um, however, he took this as further proof of their closeness mm-hmm. and the relationship that they had been developing. By now, peers and colleagues had warned Rebecca on several occasions not to write even remotely personal messages back to fans for this very reason. They'd also warned her that when she went to um, DMV and things like that, when she got a license to never put her personal address on there. Right. Um, that's something that she didn't heed the advice on either. She had her personal address booked in the DMV. Um, and around this time, Rebecca moved again to an older, more spacious apartment in the Fairfax area of West Hollywood. This was filled with up-and-coming actors and actresses as well as trendy bars and restaurants. Um, a little bit more space for her rather than the small, cramped apartment she had up in Hollywood Hills. Um, and in the summer of 1987, Robert Bardo decided it was time to finally go out to Hollywood and meet his love. He bought a Greyhound bus ticket for the 10-hour drive and used the money he had saved up from um, as working as a janitor at Jack in the Box to buy a five-foot-tall teddy bear and the biggest bouquet of flowers he could find. This part kind of made me sad. Yeah, then he lie. gutted the it's teddy bear shit, and got scumbag. inside of it. And but actually, it's just so sad, well, the image of him showing up, <laughs> showing up to the Warner Brothers with his five-foot teddy bear, this giant bouquet, truly believing that he was going to be like... sweeping her off her feet you know he really believed that right he really thought he was just gonna walk waltz right in there like other people wouldn't do that if that was a thing you could do you see these hearts on this letter here do you see them do you see (laughs) let me in here this is she loves me obviously one of the nicest letters ever you see this (laughs) 
I'm like, you can't even interpret that in a way that's like personal at all. One of the nicest one letters of, that the fans even, have sent me. She didn't even say the <laughs> nicest. She was just like right. one of the nicest. Right. Yeah. Um, so upon his arrival to Hollywood, Bardo headed straight for Warner Brothers Studios with his five-foot teddy bear and giant bouquet of roses where he was turned away by guards who weren't impressed by his handwritten note from Rebecca Schaefer. <laughs> Dejected. Dejected, out of money, and failing to meet uh, with Rebecca or find our home, find her home after walking around the Hollywood Hills, he must not have realized that she had moved yet again. Yet, right? Um, Robert took the long bus ride home in shame. He returned only a month later, however, this time with a knife concealed in a bag, and was even more persistent with the Warner Brothers guards, who decided to take him to their chief security guard's office, judging this guy as overly persistent, kind of creepy. And may, maybe he needs to have a little talk with our head man over here to let, you know, this. And, you know, this guy, the, the head chief security guard at Warner Brothers, sounded like he was he was trying to do the right thing. He was, became like a fatherly figure for a moment for, to Bardo. He was just like had a, t- a heart to heart with him. Like, dude, I, I see what you're doing. Um, he personally escorted him back to his hotel. And on the car ride, he basically gave him like the a whole speech about, you know, like, you need to go back. I understand right. you think she loves you, but she's got her own thing going on. She doesn't love you. Well, um, you need to move on. You need to find your own thing and find someone else. And Right. And I'm sure yeah. he was used to this type of thing. Working at heads, head of security at Warner Brothers Studios, this is, some, this is a typical thing. It's like, oh, we got another one of these. You know, exactly. let's talk them off the thought- cliff and send them home. He couldn't have thought the the depth at which Bardo's obsession was. You know, I no. mean, he thought he was she, he was just another kind of you know another hopeless romantic fan. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, well, that's also because Bardo seen you know, he 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 what he didn't come across as that way when he would talk to someone else about it. You know, like when he called his sister, he was much more personal and like you could see that come out of him the creepiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but with strangers, he he was able to kind of tone down things and and come across as just another fan and so it's okay right um meanwhile my sister sam had uh started to decline um it was moved to saturday nights opposite the facts of life which was part of nbc's successful saturday night lineup and by the end of october 1987 the show's audience had dwindled to one of the lowest on the network tv rankings at at number 71 so they were basically were thrown in a position where there was no way no winning they were put against a juggernaut of the facts of life Mm -hmm. you know the same time slot, and it's like I don't know why they would even bother trying that. Like they weren't ready for that that level, right? You know, they they had a successful lineup being on Monday nights, and then all of a sudden they put them on Saturday night against the biggest show on TV. Yeah, um, and so they was doomed. Um, the series was put on a hiatus in November 1987 and remained in production while the network decided what to do with it. Jessica maintained a positive attitude and was, and even hosted the Thanksgiving parade for the second straight year for CBS. This time from Detroit. Um, CBS brought the series. Yeah, yeah. still cold. Not quite the same as Toronto, but still cold. Yeah. Um, CBS would bring back the series to air on March fifteenth, ninety eight, nineteen ninety eight, due in part to its letters from fans and the nineteen eighty eight Writers Guild of America strike, which affected the production of other TV shows for for CBS and other two major networks. Um, But chose to move my sister Sam yet again to Tuesday nights. But by April, the ratings has failed to improve, and the series was again pulled from the lineup, and eventually CBS announced the series cancellation in May of 1988, leaving 12 episodes off the second season unaired. So that was that for Son of... for uh, I almost said Son of Sam, for My Sister Sam. <laughs> son of Sam. That's One of my cool. favorite episodes that we did, Son of Sam. Go check that out on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Dude, and that's um, that's the way Hollywood goes, though, man. Right? You're at the yeah, top of the mountain. That's par for the course. And the next thing you that's know, it's over. You got to find yeah. something else. It's always if there. you're lucky enough to get your pilot episode of a TV show picked up and and do some episodes, just enjoy every one of them. I, I remember I've listened to some episodes of The Office Ladies about the show The Office, and they were saying after the first season, they were like, "All right, that's it. We're never going to be doing this again." They the last episode they did in the first season, they were like having a party, like this was great, guys, and we'll you know. So glad we got the opportunity to do this, and little did they know they were going to just continue <laughs> to do it for like another, later. <laughs> yeah, eight seasons after that. Yeah, um, but they had that right mentality where they're like, "This was wonderful, and uh, we enjoyed it while it lasted." But it's TV, and it just doesn't last. Right, right. Um, so after the second of failed attempt to meet Rebecca Bardo, had moved on to other celebrities, and he after the heart to heart with the the Warner Brothers chief security guard i think that he took that to heart and he actually kind of tried to buy into that like i have to move on i'm just like it's never going to happen with me and uh, jessica right uh you mean but, rebecca. Uh, he tr- so rebecca yeah so he tries to move on to other celebrities even traveling to new york in another attempt to meet a, a star this time it was pop star debbie gibson he failed yet again to get in contact with her while in new york however bardo stopped at the location where mark chapman had shot john lennon outside of John Lennon's apartment. He had read the book about Chapman and he had found himself beginning to relate to him and even read the book Catcher in the Rye, Uh-oh. which helped to inspire Mark Chapman That's to kill the John Lennon. book right there, isn't it? Yeah, that book's caused some problems, huh? Yeah, way to go, Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Little did they know. Um, <laughs> Required reading so, my ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> Required for future killers to right. read. Right, <laughs> Seriously. Um, so Bardo had tried passing on his obsession to other celebrities, but none of them had ever wrote back in the same way or seemed as down to earth and innocent as Rebecca Schaefer. He found himself still following her as closely as ever. After My Sister Sam, Schaefer had supporting roles in, in movies, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, the, ends, the End of Innocence, and the television film Out of Time. She also served as a spokesperson for the children's fa- charity Tuesday's Child. So she's doing charity work and she's finding um, roles in, in films. Scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills is actually pretty big. It 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 made it to theaters. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a pretty good get for her. And that's what really set off Bardo, though. She had a scene in that movie where she she basically had an implied sex scene. She had a romantic scene where there was no nudity or anything like that. But right. it, it just set Bardo off. She was no longer innocent in his eyes. Um he was one of the first to buy a movie ticket for that movie, Scenes of the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, and was crushed to see that romantic scene with Rebecca and a male actor in which sex was implied. The wholesome image he had and had been shattered. He immediately wrote another letter to her. This time, he had a judgmental tone calling her Miss Nudie Two-Shoes. <laughs> oh, no, he didn't. The gall of this fucker, no, right? No, he like, didn't. You don't even know her. <laughs> that son of a bitch. Like he's her father all of a sudden. Two-Shoes. Wow. Yeah, I think Douchebag. this... Uh, one of the other actresses that she worked alongside talked about this. It was like it was not so much the rejection or the fact that there was never going to be anything, but it was the fact it, it was her loss of innocence on the screen. It was that change yeah. of character. He took it mm-hmm. personal. Like right. not only has she rejected me, she's not even the person I thought she was. Right. You know, she doesn't deserve to How be here. How dare she? Yeah, Exactly. Meanwhile, she's she's trying to mix it up, you know. She 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 did the wholesome young thing in My Sister Sam, and now she's trying to get into feature films, and 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 trying to expand her her roles. Like that'll help you get other roles if you if you're shown that you're multidimensional, that you you can't you can do more than one thing. No and that's doubt. what she was trying to do. Absolutely. 
You have to to stay alive um, in Hollywood. Yeah. And by early 1989, she had rekindled her relationship with Brad Silberling, and the two were even discussing marriage at this point. Um, and around this time, Bardo had learned about Arthur Richard Jackson, who had stalked and stabbed the actress Teresa Saldano in 1982. He had learned that Jackson had used a private investigator to obtain Saldana's address. And you know where he learned that from? Uh, a magazine. Goddamn magazines. Fuck. A magazine article. It, that, That's where he learned that. That story's nuts, it, and it could be its own episode. Teresa Saldana, who was who was actually in Raging Bull, which I watched recently, great film. Um, she was in that movie. She was a, a young starlet as well. And mm -hmm. the way that Arthur Jackson acquired her address through this private investigator, this private, this was it the private investigator that investigator that called her mom and got the address by pretending to be Martin Scorsese, or was that Jackson himself? No, 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 no. That that's how uh, that's how Bardo did it. No, Bardo, Teresa Saldano, Arthur Jackson hires this this uh, private investigator. Oh, I'm getting and they them called, mixed up. I'm getting them mixed up. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody okay. called Saldano's mother, right, on the phone. They got the phone number. Yes. Called her, pretended to be Martin Scorsese, and said, uh, hold on, I've got the details here. So Teresa Saldano's stabbing. Um, so in March of 1982, Saldano was stalked by Arthur Richard Jackson, the 46-year-old drifter from Aberdeen, Scotland. Jackson became obsessed with Saldana after seeing her in the 1980 films uh, Defiance and Raging Bull. He obtained Saldana's address by hiring a private investigator to obtain the unlisted phone number of Saldana's mother. Yes. So the investigator found Saldana's mother's phone number. Jackson then called Saldana's mother, posed as Martin Scorsese's, Scorsese's assistant, saying he needed Saldana's residential address in order to contact her for replacing an, an actress in a role film role in Europe. So he calls... Her mom says he's Scorsese. He needs her address. She gives it to him. He shows up to her house and stabs her outside of her house, almost killing her. If a man didn't step in, thankfully, and stop the guy and fight with him for the knife, yeah. she would have died for sure. Dude, this would have been like a Kitty Genovese type thing, dude. Yeah, it was like yeah, because there was a bunch of bystanders there standing there watching. A bunch of people like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, and this yep. guy just just one person acted, and that's all it takes. It just takes one person yep. to do something. But yep. man, that was yeah. She wouldn't. She would be dead, no doubt. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah. She was. She was gravely injured after that. She barely survived this attack. And he, all he did was walk up to her outside of her home and say, "Hey, are you Teresa Saldana?" She says, "Yes." He pulls out a knife and just proceeds to stab her. God. So this, this uh, actually influenced Bardo in the means of how to obtain uh, young Rebecca's address. Um, he, he read about this in a, in a magazine, you know, about this whole incident with uh, Arthur Jackson, and this inspired him. He decided to give this a try. He called up AA Detective Agency in Tucson and sold some of his personal belongings, including a couple guitars, in order to pay them the $250 they required to find Rebecca Schaefer's home address in the California Department of Motor Vehicles DMV records. Um, so as we mentioned, she didn't take the advice of her, co you know, of her cohorts and her peers saying, do not put your address on your ID. Do not list it with, DM with DMV records. Mm -hmm. um, that stuff's attainable. Uh, and little did uh, Bardo know that all he had to do, he didn't have to pay a, a private investigator $250 to get this. All he had to do is call the DMV themselves. And they, at the time, didn't have any protection for, their, for the people registered with them. They would have literally, if he would have just asked for Rebecca Schaefer's address, they would have given it to That's him. That's insane to me. Yeah, luckily that's been changed since. But yeah, at the <laughs> yeah. time, that's all the private investigator did. We're like, ooh, that's an easy two fifty. I'll just call DMV, get the address, yeah. give it to them, get the two hundred fifty bucks. Wow. Um, 
And then Bardo got a little more assistant, this time assistance, this time from his brother who helped him to get a Ruger GP100 357 handgun because uh, Bardo was only 19 and obviously had a history of mental illness. Um, so he has a gun, he has the address. A letter Bardo wrote to his sister around this time stated his love for Schaefer and said, quote, if I can't have her, no one can. And we've heard that said many times before horrific incidents, you know, a lot of times regarding exes and whatnot like that. That is so sick, man. That's such a sick way to be. Seriously. Oh, it's so disturbing. So Bardo then travels to Los Angeles for a third time, arriving in the early morning hours of July 18th, 1989. He roamed the neighborhood where Schaefer lived, asking people if she actually lived there. Once he was certain that the address was correct, he rang the doorbell. This day, to me, is a movie scene in itself. I can't believe the the just twists of fate that were here. This, this, I know. Because... Schaefer was literally preparing for an audition for the biggest audition of her life. Yep. She had received word that Francis Ford Coppola had pegged her as the front runner for a major role in the film The Godfather Part Three. He wanted her. He had considered, he had seen, you know, her work, mm-hmm. studied her, and he had studied like Julia Roberts uh, from uh, Pretty Woman and stuff like that. He had had a few big, big actresses' names um, there, but he was considering uh, Rebecca Schaefer the number one kind of front runner for this this part and she right. was set to audition for this role at 11 a.m on this day she literally like a few hours from when uh bardo shows up at her door she's in her apartment awaiting the script to arrive because i guess at this time it was common practice for movie studios to send the script to the actors and actresses that were about to uh audition for the role they would send them the script like an hour or two before the audition they didn't want them to have too much time to study it they wanted to see how how natural they were at it right so she was waiting for this script she was nervous she had this this big role she was going to be uh, auditioning for in a few hours and she's answered she answers the door for bardo who shows up at her door because she's expecting the script to be there mm-hmm. not only that her buzzer to her apartment was just in a weird twist of fate was broken at this time. Right. So otherwise she could have, bu- you know, he would have buzzed. She would, she would have said, who is it? He would have said, I'm some fucking creepy stalker. <laughs> she would have said, go away. Go, you know, go like, the fuck away. Like, what could he have said? Like, <laughs> um, he would have a, said, you know, I'm an your alternate, biggest fan. You know? Right. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Um, so yeah, she's in her apartment when he shows up, he rings the doorbell. She's preparing in her apartment for this audition for the Godfather part three. Um, yeah, in a few, few short hours, she was due to, to do, to do this and she's expecting the script to be delivered. So, um, she goes down and she answers the door. Bardo is standing there. He shows her a letter and an autograph that she had previously sent him for a, after a short conversation, she's very polite. She's very nice. She says, look, I appreciate that you're a fan. I think it's wrong that you found my address and rang my door. Um, I'm going to ask you, please do not come back. Did you know he reminds very, me of right here? He reminds me of uh, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. What's all that one in a million oh, yeah. stuff? <laughs> <laughs> right. What about this letter you sent me? Right. I saw you with that other guy on TV the other day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, so she's very polite. She asks him not to come back. He leaves. Um, Bardo walked a block and a half away to a nearby diner. He had breakfast, uh, which consisted of apparently onion rings and cheesecake. Why? I don't know if you could call that breakfast. What? That's to me is almost like a final meal type thing. Like he was maybe planning on committing a suicide. Yeah, like, what the hell is that? Onion, onion rings? rings and fucking cheesecake Gross. for breakfast, dude. Bro, pick yeah, one. Yeah, first of all, it's not even a good combo. That's not a good combo. Who's say- like I, they're both great on their own accord, but yeah. together not so much. But who's eating onion rings for breakfast? 
or cheesecake. <laughs> I mean, why is that even on the Where's menu? Where's the protein, bro? It's just like starch uh, and fucking sugar. It makes That's no sense. Right. No sense. Um, so yeah, the, he, he goes, he walks down the street to this diner. He has onion rings and cheesecake. Um, from the diner, he called his sister on a payphone and told her that he was a block and a half away from Rebecca Schaefer's apartment and that he was on a mission of sorts. Mm. Um, he returns to the apartment yet again about an hour later. This is 10, 15 a.m., 45 minutes before her audition for The Godfather Part 3. Um, and unfortunately, I'm sure she was distracted. We've talked about this before, right, where sometimes often victims get victimized because they're distracted in the moment and they just don't see the threat right in front of them. Right. I think that played into this a lot. No doubt. I think had this creepy fucker showed up to her door on a normal day and rang it and she happened to go and answer it, she wouldn't have answered the door again that day No. an hour later. You know what I mean? Like she would have been more careful. There was a window on the door too. That's what blows me away. If you look at the the pictures, uh, there, if you just look up... Uh, you you look up Rebecca Schaefer's apartment or the crime yes, scene or whatever. There's plenty of pictures. You of see it, yeah. the door has a big window. She could see out and see who it was. That's what blows me away is that she actually answered the door again, looking out that window and seeing that it was him. Well, I think but that just goes to show you how little she thought he was an actual threat in that way. She just thought he was some kind of pathetic fan. Exactly. And but she also she also was a personable person. So she's like, okay, yes. I'm going to deal with this face to face. I'm going to send this guy away, and this is going to be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so he returns at 10.15 a.m. Unfortunately, she answered the door again, this time wearing a bathrobe because she was probably in the shower about to go on this big audition. She had her clothes laid out on the bed, apparently. Um, she answers the door with a cold look on her face, Bardo later said, and she says, you came to my door again. You're wasting my time. Bardo then says, I forgot to give you this. And what point? At what point he pulls out the gun from a brown paper bag and shot her in the chest at point-blank range in the doorway of her apartment building. Schaefer screamed and collapsed, screaming why in her doorway as Bardo fled. A neighbor called an ambulance and she was taken to Cedar Cyanide Medical Center where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes later after her arrival. Um, mm. When word hit the press that Schaefer had been killed, Bardo's sister, who lived in Tennessee, told a local policeman that she knew that this was her brother um, as soon as she heard the news. Obviously, he had killed her, he had called her from the diner and said he was a block and a half away on that day that she was killed. Um, but just absolute tragedy. Um, wow. Tennessee police would then be informed from uh, would then inform Los Angeles police, who in turn notified Tucson police. So we're going multiple jurisdictions here mm -hmm. to be on the lookout for Bardo because that was where obviously he was from, was Tucson. Right. And it didn't take long after Tucson police was uh, alerted to the fact that he may have killed someone in Los Angeles that they found him. Um, motorists had reported a man running through traffic. Uh, in a state of disarray on Interstate 10, he immediately confessed to the murder after being picked up. Uh, Marcia Clark, better known for her role as plead pro lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder case, prosecuted the case against him, and he would end up being convicted of capital murder in a bench trial and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And as we mentioned a few times, as a result of this incident, California law regarding the release of personal information through DMV was changed. The Drivers, the Drivers Privacy Protection Act was created, which prevents the DMV from releasing private addresses, which enacted in 1994. So it took a little while after her murder, but they got it done, and now you can't just call it DMV and get anybody's address. Right. Um, so obviously the only defense here was insanity, right? Where, where do you yeah. stand with this? I mean, it's so well planned, and he... Oh, no, he knew he was doing wrong. It was a selfish act. It wasn't something out of his control. This is absolutely not... There's no... There's, there's no 
insanity plea here. No, I think all of his actions after that are, are just trying to get that though. Which in turn, I guess he got the life in prison that he wanted. He didn't. He didn't receive the death penalty. Which, right. which I don't think is is fair. I mean, if you're going to give anyone the death penalty, someone who stalked someone for months, tracked them down, went to their door and shot them point blank. I mean, someone who was nice to them too. How, I mean, she was always cordial and nice to him, as nice as someone could be to to a, you know some a stranger, a fan. Right. You know, what I mean, she. Even when he came to her fucking door, which was so beyond crossing the line, she should have right then slammed the door, called the police, yes. and said, I have a crazy stalker at my house right now. Yes. You know, I'm kind of a known person or whatever. But like you said, she she didn't have time to deal with that. It was just it was just a exactly. clusterfuck. Weird timing of that day. Yes. She was so distracted. She did not I wonder what time. what do you think Coppola was like the the number one actress that you wanted to see in your in the role that was about to audition for the role in your movie gets you, you get the call that she was just killed in her front door like that had to have been a trip 45 minutes before our audition she's killed yeah you got to think well should i even make this movie yeah <laughs> i mean I don't, I don't know it just like you said it was just it, it almost makes you believe in, in, in fate in, in, in retrospect because it was not known as a it's, it's uh, from my understanding, is it's kind of a disgrace to the first two, which were two of the greatest movies of all time, but part three wasn't so great. Oh, well, it's because Rebecca Schaefer wasn't in it. She she would have made it better, I think. Oh, no and doubt. She was, yeah. So no doubt. Um, and Schaefer's death also helped to prompt the 1990 passage of America's first anti-stalking laws. So some anti-stalking laws came into effect after her. Yeah, definitely. that was long overdue. Yeah, long overdue, man. It's Is amazing. It, Teresa Saldana's uh, incident didn't change change all that much. I know, right? I guess because she didn't die. That's <laughs> right. that's insane. That's that's crazy to me. If she if she dies, I, I guess they then they would enact some laws, but they wait for someone to die. It just uh, that just blows me she away. Would, uh, I guess she she founded the Victims for Victims organization and participated in lobbying for the 1990 anti-stalking laws and the 1994 drivers protect. So some of the acts that came into play after Schaefer's murder were pushed along by Teresa, who obviously had a similar incident. Oh yeah, no doubt. And so, Teresa, yeah, she was uh, lobbying for those. We also didn't mention that Teresa uh, didn't she make a movie about herself and starred in it too about the attack. She she uh, yeah she starred in her own movie. About the uh, about her attack, so yeah. you could check that out. And one of the because I remember in the documentary, one of the actresses, she I mean, or no, she wasn't an actress. She was the director of that movie, and she talked about. She was like, "Oh, it's it's just not often that you actually have the 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 person that experienced this horrible event, and that they're they're an actress themselves, so they can play it." And I'm like, "Oh wow, how lucky for you!" how lucky for you it must have been so real for her to be able to relive that scene after scene after scene that must have been great yeah Yeah. good point all right guys well oh man that that was a great case man i i hadn't heard of it i hadn't heard of it before you brought it to my attention i hadn't either i stumbled across it this week and uh thought it was perfect and i think i hope you guys enjoyed it it was very good case man all right. Now you want to get to some Oh My Gaia? Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. 
at Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, there's tons of scents to choose from, from vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, which is what I'm wearing today, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside. There's a new one that's a unisex scent called Sailor. I know you like that one, Lauren. Um, I'm wearing it right now. Yeah, Love Sailor. I like Sailor as well. It, it's a great one. Fireside's another one of my favorites. Um, and we have our very own scent from Oh My Gaia called True Crime Pine. Uh, if you guys want to check that out or any of these other scents, because you are True Crime Guys listeners, you can get 15% off your order by using the code word CREEPER, C-R-E-E-P-E-R, and that'll get you 15% off your order at ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. Guys, you won't regret Hell it. Yeah. It's uh, it's cheaper and more effective than most organic deodorants out there, and uh, the scents are amazing. And she's and she's always adding new scents. Um, but yeah, you can hit them up, hit her up on uh, Instagram at shop underscore oh my Gaia. Wendy is great, uh, guys. She'll help you guys out if you make an order. Maybe you want to try another scent. She'll she could send you a samples, but you know, no free samples. Okay, nobody can afford to do that in small business world. This ain't Costco. That's right. That's right. This ain't Costco. <laughs> but yeah, guys, uh, you, you couldn't be supporting a better person or a better small business. So we appreciate yeah. that very much. Absolutely. Uh, I want to uh, thank those of you that have gone and rated and reviewed on iTunes, uh, taking the time. Even if you just go click five stars and leave some fire emojis, that gets you a shout out. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you guys. And I want to say, so from since the last episode, we got Freedom Sings in the U.S., Joe1210, uh, S Star Jenny in the US said, I can't stop listening. D Gill in the US said, We're awesome. Uh, Contrived75 in the US. Uh, Manda Panda82 said, Awesomeness. (laughs) Scarlet7575 in Canada, up there in Canada. All right. Uh, 210 Soap Co in the US. Very nice. MPN131. Uh, said great podcast five stars Kimberly forty nine ninety one in the U S uh, Jay Harris nineteen seventy one in the U S Kimmer seventy four sixty seven in the U S and BMT nineteen ninety six uh, fire emojis hell been yeah. listening for about three years yo hell yeah We've been wow. around for a while yeah I've been around since the early days that's awesome that's right we so thank you guys for taking the time to do that it definitely helps the podcast. Yes. Um, and we enjoy reading them as well. They do. So. It's very encouraging, motivating, keeps us rolling, you know. It's nice to get some feedback. It really yeah. is. And if you want to help out the podcast even more, you can go join Patreon, patreon.com slash guys. $2 a month gets you a ton of bonus content, gets you into a drawing so for much. free stuff. Yeah. Um, and if you go to the higher tiers, like $5 a month, gets you the very prestigious gold creep van sticker. That's right. Um, and also yeah, so th- access to our exclusive Patreon episode once a month so that, there's that's if right you're, if you're just a freeloader you uh miss that you miss us for one week every month but uh, every fourth episode we do right. just for the patreons and a lot of times it's the heavy hitters um and then also some unknown uh, some unknown cases like we did the boy in the chimney for our last one which a lot of people yes. responded well to so yes that was a great one and also if you are already a patreon member and you've heard everything that true crime guys has put out we got even more content for you that's That's stra- right. Strange and Unexplained, a True Crime Guys production. That's another podcast that is uh, live 
Actually, episode six uh, was released today on uh, Monday. We record on Mondays. I know this episode, I know it's Wednesday. This episode was released on Wednesday, but uh, Strange and Unexplained is released on Mondays. And episode six just dropped this past Monday. What is today? The 11th? Yep. What is today? Yeah. So every Monday, new Strange and Unexplained. And every Wednesday, new True Crime Guys. And if you want to support Strange and Unexplained on uh, Patreon, it's patreon.com slash podcast. Or if you have the Patreon app, you have to search Strange and Unexplained, uh, which became uh, very clear to me in a lot of posts. People were having a hard time finding it, which is typical with new podcasts. The more people that search it, the engines will more more, more and more pick it up as the podcast gains right. popularity. But easy way to podcast, do it is just type in True Crime Guys into a podcast app, and then it's, it's right next to it when you type that in. Yes, yes, because we are the author of that podcast, so... Yeah, search True Crime guys, guys. We uh, we appreciate the support on both on both shows. So we're just trying to bring more content, and uh, you know keep you guys entertained through this quarantine and beyond. I can't believe it's already been six episodes, man. It's crazy. I know. That, Time I was flies. Looking. You start something, and then all of a sudden you got like this catalog of episodes. You're like, geez, how did that happen? I know. I know. I'm excited about this new one too. I'm excited about the new True Crime guys next week and the new Strange and Unexplained. We got two. Bangers of cases, man. I I can't wait. So, what blows me away is I can't believe we already have the True Crime Guys episode picked. Usually we pick it like two days before, (laughs) (laughs) and then I have to cram. Hey, don't tell them that. Study like I'm like I'm studying for a fucking exam. (laughs) Don't tell them that. As far as I know, we're months in advance. Right. Right. Oh yeah, we got next year already all settled out. That's right. Fifty, all fifty-two episodes. You guys are gonna love this one in September. Let me tell you. (laughs) Uh, all right, all right guys. guys we'll see you next week thanks uh thanks for tuning in keep creeping yep keep creeping guys true crime guys in the desert we like a mirage it's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage now we ain't mad at you sit down let us talk at you i'm talking to the creeper army we out here making murder get murder get murder in the desert we like a mirage it's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was true crime garage now we ain't mad at you sit down let us talk at you i'm talking to the creeper army we out here making better charming